This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Hi, everybody. It's John Hall with you this week, and I'm coming to you from Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I'm here for the winter conference of the Michigan Brewers Guild. And I could have come up with a fancy introduction of my guest today, but in doing my research on him, I found this quote, which sums it up perfectly. Fred is craft. He has made craft beer and spirits his livelihood. He is committed to craft food movement, hosting dinners, developing his own cooking prowess. Hell, he wrote a book about it. And if you've had the pleasure of visiting his and his wife's farm, you know that this is not just a hobby for him. Craft is the way that Fred lives his life. And that's Brett Vanderkamp, the president and co-founder of New Holland Brewing, where my guest today, Fred Biltman, used to work for a while, and he's he's since gone. Uh, he is the beer evangelist, as he is known. You are Michigan beer. You're, I mean, you're... You're, you are Mr. Kraft. Well, thank you. Um, Those are Brett's words, so I mean, it's. Yeah. But I, I was excited to read them. Thank you. Yeah, it's I, I, I I'm flattered by it, and uh, I, it's also something that I'm, I'm really grateful for because I spent uh, really more than uh, I think 25 or 26 years in the beer industry, and along the way, it's, it's. Uh, I think what I love to share about beer and what I hoped beer was doing for the world is also what happened to me, which has inspired me to take a closer look at at um, everything and kind of care more deeply and like just pay attention. And so it brought me to food and to uh, looking at that uh, in, a, in a more inspired perspective. And it brought me to look around the world and think differently. So, um, you know, as much as it's flattering to hear it said about me, it's also <laughs> what I'm grateful for that the industry has, has uh, given me and inspired me with. So the word craft, and, and we've had this conversation uh, on, on previous shows. You, you did a podcast in, in, in the past. Uh, you've done two podcasts, actually, and we'll talk about the second one uh, in a minute. Uh, you've been on uh, the other podcast that I do called Steal This Beer. Uh, we've talked about the word craft a lot over the years, the, the two of us. And I feel that during that time, and certainly the, the 15 or so years that I've been in the industry, the longer you, you've been in the industry, um, that word has morphed to mean one thing at one point and means something else now um and i think it used to mean and we we knew what it meant like artisanal and small batch and now dunkin donuts has craft bagels for sale in the morning which is really anything but um with you tied up so much in this industry and not just beer but spirits and food and 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 everything else what is the current state of craft well i think i think like personally, I still think it means what it means to me and to a lot of consumers. That's why some of these other uh, producers and brands are using it. Is that if it if it didn't mean something valuable and wholesome, uh, they they wouldn't be attaching it to their products that may not represent that otherwise. So yeah. I think even though it's 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 a little wobbly at times as a buzzword and as as a definitive mark, um, I think even in those sort of manipulated moments they're using it because it represents something customers kind of know and reflect on which is like oh i get it this is probably you know independent farm to table made traditionally 
there's something of this that is more wholesome um, or um, grounded than its other alternative. Um, sure. And so I do think it's I do think it's getting warped, but you know, and and that's a risk when so this project that I've started, this craft nation, I'm using craft uh, in the name, knowing that it can be polarizing, but I think it still has a lot of life and any word we describe something once it becomes valuable enough for other people to try to um, just use it for its value it, it changes I mean we've seen this with lots of different terms um, and the and sometimes the, the, the you know it when you see it is more powerful than than trying to make things absolutely black and white and one parallel is like organic mm-hmm. right? so organic does have some specific scientific connotations about what it means to, to be of organic nature. But I think in its outset, it also meant something about the farm you expected it to be from and the practices they used, and, the, and, and it, it had some other connotations to it. Um, now, organic, you know, isn't the strongest word because um, there's a lot of big farms doing organic and the, and the government requirements to be certified organic are so rigorous and challenging that some of the small farms that might be doing better practices than a really large one that's labeled organic the, the, you know it when you see it the customers of those small farms they aren't, they aren't worried about the certification um, you know I know farmers that have offhand used, and used the terms you know and it means something to chefs saying ah oh, we're more than organic okay like don't look for it on the label I don't have the certificate come out to my farm I'll show you but doesn't it delude when there are places like you know Wawa the the convenience store having craft sandwiches uh, you know that you get from the counter that you can get you know that I mean that just aren't again like they, they might not taste bad but it, it does convey a certain thing so then when you get it I'm just I'm just wondering like you know when people are using this word oh I'm with you and yeah I, and I'm frustrated by it but I think it's part of the natural course of popularity that we've made something um, uh, collectively you know people across this country made things of value that that term meant so much that it became attractive enough to be used in that way and what I'm saying is that an established customer of our segment right so let's say a craft beer consumer if they somebody see somebody misusing it the customers who know better know better and they may be irritated they may be like oh yeah you know, there's Kraft and Dunkin' Donuts. Now they eye roll. They still don't think, oh, well, Dunkin' Donuts equals Kraft now. Now, a consumer who's not in our that's camp what I was ask, yeah. will be confused. And that's where the lack of transparency, this ends up being, a, uh, I think, a battle over transparency. And to me, it's not about the definition of the word Kraft, although in certain camps that's important for people to focus on. My, I'm kind of going more to the root of it and saying, like, okay, transparency is really what's important that if you're a customer that starts to value where your things come from and how they're made and and you want to be with truthful trustworthy makers you want to have a, this this personal connection then you ask questions about well, so what do you mean by this craft sandwich dunkin donuts well and if the answers don't jive you're like yeah okay that's what I thought. right and on the other hand if you whether somebody uses the word craft or not you know when you're in a place that says you know whatever if it's if it's in the food comparison like this has been happening as, as long as they've had farm to table um, you know there's restaurants who know the farmers and have a really rigorous program and their their food shows it their whole it, their ethos show through their whole 
experience. And then there's other people, you know, the old term greenwashing, where they buy, you know, a pound of, of lettuce from the organic farm to farmer's market and 100 pounds from, uh, yeah. from a big food distributor and they're farm to table. Right. And I just think that generally the customers that are going to be the most valuable to this movement, I count on their intelligence to sniff the difference out. And, and I also then call makers to say transparency is what's important right now. And customers, if you can't figure out the path that this, uh, if, if you can't uh, sort of feel and see and, and trust that it is what they say it is, then buyer beware. It's, it's mindfulness that's still gonna make the difference. Meaning, whether the term gets misused or used appropriately, this idea of what it is craft represents prior to that bastardization of sorts, that idea still valuable, whatever we call it. If we end up calling it a new term down the road, so be it or whatever. But what we know is that something that, um, you know, something that is trustworthy and uh, made with great intention and uh, made where quality is prioritized above convenience and price, um, that's something that we didn't have in our marketplace for a number of decades. We had it before and we're getting it now, but that got traded away for the sake of convenience, for the sake of national markets. We, and this is not just beer, not just spirits, not even, it, it's across widely in food and drink, but it's, it's everything. Is that we as a nation grew to a certain time where commoditization and, and industrialization and mass production, these were ideas with, I think, good intentions um, in most cases. Um, but they stripped us of choice, and, and quality took a backseat to convenience. And um, it took us a while to recognize what we lost. And I think the power of all this is we're getting it back. So, so I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I lean a lot more towards what are we talking about rather than what are we calling it. Okay. I, I think that's priority. Cause no, I think... Call it whatever. Like every industry, I talk to makers of all, all different types and big, little, successful, marginal, new, old, and it's like, I would use the word craft and people got what I meant. It doesn't mean their industry is like, we're a craft blacksmith, you know, they're just a blacksmith or boot maker or guitar maker, like, they weren't using the word craft, but they knew why I was talking to them under this umbrella of craft, because we got it. We, it was a language piece rather than a label piece. So in 2017, you embarked on a new journey for this. Uh, it's a it's going to be a book. Yes. Uh, it's a podcast as well, uh, and it's this this project that you're calling this Craft Nation. Correct. Um, tell us about it. Well, um, in short, I wanted to talk about what we're talking about. I wanted to talk about the craft renaissance that I've been fortunate to be a part of through beer and spirits, and in some uh, indirect ways, food as well. And I felt like what I've experienced, and, and the more I got to speak to people and, and uh, following writing the Beer Evangelist Guide to the Galaxy. Which was, was in, your first cookbook. Yeah, first yeah, and book. I want to talk to you about that as well. We're that was a get book on that. beer yeah. and food, and, and there was a bit of philosophy in there about seasonal eating and, and connecting to what you eat and drink. <coughs> Pardon me. So um, as I started thinking about the next book, instead of this... I, I kind of had another food book lined up and I just felt myself 
drawn this other way and I was like I really want to talk about this bigger thing this cultural shift that we're going through and like even these questions we're asking what is it what is the importance of the word what what makes something different why have people responded you know internationally in in such a way where we're paying more for products we're working harder to find them we're you know we're adding inconvenience to our lives to to make several stops to different stores for different products or go to the specialty store or wait for something um, you know we're and we're and we're willing to pay more for stuff why why is that happening in bread and cheese and coffee and wood and clothing and instead of looking at that when you're in a segment like I was in beer and and then um, spirits down the road you can look at it as a sales trend as this as this branding and marketing success of your segment and it's because we're doing such great things and I'd love to you know for us to be able to take credit but <laughs> but I when I look at it and I say well this is happening in all of these other areas too um, it's this idea that there's something in common with all these things that's more about the consumer and so what I did um, well so I knew that that was the idea of what I wanted to write about and, and then my next thought was I don't want to try to write this as a lecture or as Fred's opinion solely and so I have really gotten in touch with the power of story and um, and people and so I thought well what if I could talk to a bunch of different makers a bunch of people that are part of this movement that are in areas that I don't know anything about so instead of going in and talking to a bunch of brewers or distillers or chefs what if I talk to people where I'm you know uh, less informed and more curious and I count on the power of curiosity and the power of story and if I could if I could tell the story of several makers and their experience over the last couple of decades again diverse in, in what they do and diverse in who they are so some of them have been doing it for a few years some have been doing it for decades if I maybe that would paint a picture of our country and and what has transformed over the last 30 to 50 years in a more powerful way, uh, in a more engaging way, than just trying to list what I think I know about it. And, and so in April, I was still working for New Holland, and, and uh, I, we created a sabbatical program um, that I was fortunate to participate in where we, I took- Did you create it just for yourself? <laughs> no, I, <laughs> uh, I, I was a voice in, in helping it get created, but- uh, <laughs> I, for a long time, I didn't know how I'd ever find a, find a clearing in the calendar, and uh, I did. And uh, so, a friend of mine, illustrator and photographer, friend of mine, Kyle Bice, who I've done some other creative projects with, he and I had been talking about this for a while, and we set out and we circled the country in 35 days, um, mostly on the train. We drove like four or five legs, and we traveled about 9,000 miles, and we interviewed more than 50 people. Um, and talk to them about uh, what they did, why they did it, who they sold to, how has it changed, uh, what are the customers like, what are the th strengths, what are the threats, and and just really even less specific stuff, just like, I mean, you know how it goes. I, I love conversational aspect of learning, which is like, you start talking in their shop and, and the life unfolds, and so uh, we talked, we listened, um, shared some beers and and uh, got a really powerful sort of mosaic of, of what's going on and 
so right now I'm in the process of, of going through all that and we're, we're broadcasting some of those interviews as podcast episodes um, and sometimes it's conversations amongst our, our small team um, while I'm, I'm at home on the farm uh, trying to distill all this information down and, and write the book which will basically tell the story of our trip and then take some sidebar trips into what are the themes that tie all these completely different people that don't know each other. There's some really strong themes that help, I think, point to what it is that we are recovering from as a culture and what are, and what are we striving for and what do we value. When you say what we're recovering from as a culture, I explore that just for a minute because I, I think I know what you mean, but I, I want to... Well, you know, probably the most powerful picture I can paint is back to the food world. But I find that every industry has this has this story. It may have taken place at a different time and looked a little differently. But yeah, yeah you know, the most powerful imagery I can think of is that you know it was once really normal for us as adolescents to know uh, what season foods grew in, and we knew um, the butcher and the baker and the barber, and and we just had a more natural, ready awareness of where our things came from and and the advancement, um, and there were advancements. Um, so it's like, I'm not filled with anger about it, but the advancement of the modern marketplace and the modern grocery store and refrigeration and shipping meant that food came from sealed bags in a well-lit grocery store. Yeah. And we didn't know when asparagus season was anymore. I didn't grow up knowing it. it right. And, and so that happened over the course of a few generations. And that ends up also being not only like an insulation from from the natural growth of things the natural like order yeah um it's not only an insulation but it ultimately removing choice so now the grocer is choosing which farm is represented maybe they're not they're just buying it from a centralized warehouse where asparagus is now asparagus but our choices were, were getting farther and farther away from us where um, if you wanted to have a discussion about quality and which asparagus you wanted, that you can't have that, that was no longer yeah. presented as an option. And now enter the farmers market, you know, um, and and food buying clubs in like the seventies, and and the growth of that has been dramatic through the eighties and nineties. And now you can walk the aisle and you can say, I I I like Charlie's corn, but you know. Have you seen, you know, uh, Brenda's Greens or whatever? Sure. Like, you can have this personal preference for uh, quality of produce, for your just your soft spot of liking the people or the farm or their practice. You can go ask them. So, you know, do you spray? And if so, what with? Um, and, and, and that was so information and choice. Those went away. And the food story is powerful and visible, and we, we all had that experience because we all ate through our childhood to survive. Um, so, but I look at every industry, and like that, everybody went through some period of industrialization and commoditization where the small producer trying to sell on quality, when, when that choice of quality is taken out of the marketplace, their value is gone. Mm -hmm. The customer doesn't have access to that. 
And, and it loses its specialness as well. It, looking forward to something is not is not really something that we we, we experience uh, right. anymore. I, I, in, in Jersey, where I am, uh, the best tomato states uh, in the country, hands down. Uh, I won't eat tomatoes now outside right. of tomato season, and it, it and it's. At first blush, people are like, well, that's crazy. It's like, no, the tomatoes I get in January are wet pink cardboard. Right. I, I, I don't want them. The tomatoes um, you eat in January ought to come from the jars in your cupboard that you put up in well, September. Yeah, well, it's, you know, not all of us live on the farm where we can do that. No, but but, no, I, but, but what I get I'm your saying point, is, like, tomatoes change. But like, it's, fresh tomatoes is different than, uh, you know, there are different purposes. for. I'm, I'm agreeing no, with no, you. No, no, no. relating, I, like, yeah, my tomatoes shift in terms of I, I, there are ways to eat them in the winter. It's not... A fresh slice. But what about the people who? Because I, I even feel like you know craft beer and then and, and the beer industry these days that there are the people who uh, you know care and then there's a larger group of people who don't care. You know, it's just oh, it's you know whatever. I'm gonna have you know, whatever or you know I'll have my tomato in January. You know, thanks very much. I'm not stopping and thinking about it. And you you did this um, when you were at New Holland. You, you did a program uh, stop and taste. Yeah. And that really struck with me because I don't think we stop enough these days. I, I and, and I count myself in that with um, you know cell phones and work and, and family and, and people being thrown in a thousand different directions. We don't often actually stop to consider what it is that we're eating, what it is that we're drinking, or even what it is that we're buying. And I know that on this 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 trip that you were out, uh, you were talking to uh, you know furniture makers and blacksmiths and people who you know. Uh, actually still craft things from hands uh, you know and we you know people go to Ikea on the weekends now and they buy the same couch that 50 other people are going to walk out yeah. with you know that they and they're not necessarily stopping and thinking yeah you know is this either economical is this the best thing is the the, the, the ramifications is there anything that you've been able to in, in your life put into practice to help you stop to help you not get caught up in the busyness of just everyday life in, in 2018. Yeah, well, I mean, so in 2000, I moved to Michigan from Chicago, and I had already been with Bell's Brewing for five years, and I would be with them another five or four and a half, something like that. But um, when I moved to Michigan from Chicago, I had already been inspired by chefs and food and beer and food. But um, when I moved to the country in a small town and got a farm with a horse um bought a house that came with a horse and, and and you didn't grow up that way did you i grew up in the sticks a little bit my grandparents had a farm that i'd visit once a year but i didn't grow up with that as like a i wasn't out doing farm chores no more okay. but i lived in where well, i drove by farms and okay you know the <laughs> sure. neighbor across the street had horses so i had i had adjacency to it but um but i was a suburban kid and then went to the city and loved the hustle and bustle of the city and yeah and was very, you know, project and career-minded in different ways. And um, I was definitely a sped-up city boy when I got to Michigan. But I'd already been coming into Michigan quite a bit, and so I'd started to grasp that it was a different pace, and I liked it. And then when I moved to a farmhouse, and um, I wasn't really raising anything um, other than a horse, which became horses, but I wasn't growing things. But but I was now in that community, and I, and I, I did... I did um, get a taste for a different pace and a different lifestyle. And now I'm on a, a farm in Fenville with more acreage and we're doing hay for the horses and we've done some other things. And I'm, I'm more entrenched and 
have incorporated a lot of the homestead lifestyles, what I call it, where you're 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 either growing or you're putting food up. You're, you're living in a style of 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 providing for your homestead, you know, through your own sort of resources and, and know-how. Um, so that is, it can sound like a lot of work on one hand. On the other hand, it's like it's work that grounds you. It's work that makes you forget about the office and. Because, you know, they say to clear the mind, you got to dirty the hands. And mm-hmm. I, I've repeated that millions of times. I don't know who said it originally, but it's like when I'm doing that sort of work, um, I love it. Because uh, some of the other stressors and fast-paced pressure that, that our current workplace and our current, like, appetite for information creates um, slows down a little bit. And, you know, listen to some music and, like canned tomatoes for a few hours and see how you feel afterwards yeah you feel good and so that has helped um but i i think it's i want to turn this a little bit for a second because i'm gonna go back to where you were headed earlier and it relates to this and that what i think is important is that i also don't want i think part of what i'm trying to do with my outreach and with why i want to tell stories as a way to draw people in is that i I want to keep this inviting and I don't want people to think they have to be a specialist or they have to completely nerd out on something to enjoy it. Because like, you know, being relaxed about something but surrounding yourself with quality choices is, you know, or not, is also a choice. Like I think the choice to like say, I'll have a beer, whatever, bring me something, surprise me. Yeah. Um, I know if I do that in my circles, I'm probably going to have a good beer. Like I don't have to... You don't have to you, worry. You don't have to yeah. wrestle this thing down and be finicky and and hard to please. Or we just don't have to. We don't have to turn this into a competition of of um, specialness or rarity or uh, it, you know part of the part of the mission for creating the stop and taste campaign was that we want this to be easy and all of this these choices and these products were made for people to enjoy because we found ourselves in a world where there were less enjoyable things. And so to me, remembering that purpose is like, listen, we're not doing this to be praised as the greatest creators of beer or widgets or whatever. We're doing this so people have enjoyable things in their lives. So let's take a minute and enjoy it. And that's not always analysis. It's not always being, you know, uh, hypercritical. Like, it's the simple things that bring joy. But if we have more quality around us it's easier to be simple you bring up something interesting when you said critical um, you know we don't have to be critical I, I think that again going back to where we are these days and with sites like Yelp and Untapped and you know everybody everybody has a voice I'm, 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 and sometimes uh, people are unnecessarily cruel because of the anonymity of the internet and sometimes people when they're posting um, just for the sake of me and posting forget that there is somebody else uh, on, on the other end when you were traveling around for this book project and you were talking to people not just in beer did you touch on that did you did you talk to people about the criticism about you know when somebody you know cuts into uh, you know their love, their passion, and what that does for for the psyche. I mean, I, I I often wonder if people don't, if some people don't follow a passion because they're worried about what other people 
se. You know, um, off the top of my head, I can't think of an instance where that happened. People did talk about, hey, so you go from making it for yourself and, and you decide, you know, there are people that opened Etsy shops and as their way to start the business or, you know, restaurants that... I mean, they did talk about you have to be you have to be your own, uh, you know, judge. That you have to kind of steal yourself, and while you have to you have to kind of know that input's coming in out there, um, that can't be your barometer for what you do. Like there was a lot of uh, one of the themes is just talking about how personal this is for people in all these different segments, and that. You know, we do it this way because it's the way we believe it should be done. Um, so I think we bumped up against some of that stuff a little bit, but I don't know that I, I don't know there was an example of anybody saying I almost didn't do it or. Um, but I, I think it delivers pain um, at times, probably more than more than anything else. I mean, I know that they can be a tool for searching for finding places, and so in some ways the. I mean, I'll go back to what I remember saying in their really early days when it was coming into beer with Beer Advocate and, and then Rake Beer. Was, I was like, I was glad, I'm glad there's a community talking about beer and valuing this, but, you know, I have a hard time logging in and, and reading this stuff. Yeah. And um, I kind of still go with that. I think the communities talking about things have, have um, brought forward, you know, people trying new restaurants and and trying new products and I love that there's online resources for things I mean I'm a I'm a sousaphone player and there's a sousaph there's not a sousaphone but there's a tuba this is this is radio so people can't always uh, picture I, I'm not even <laughs> sure I can conjure in my mind what a sousaphone, sousaphone is sousaphone is a tuba that wraps around you so it's the old okay. marching tubas okay um, I mean there are purists as I know from the, the tuba discussion forum I'm on that say no it's not a tuba that's wrapped around it's it's own instrument but it's in the family, and it's essentially a marching tuba. But my point is, you know, there's a discussion forum. It's not like a rating site, but where where people who are passionate about this stuff post and and are resources for each other, and you can find parts and instruments and people, and it's incredible. And I think that every every walk of life has now there's somewhere there's a there's a conversation happening online that. It's going to include um, networking and uh, advice and mentoring, and it's probably going to include some hostility and criticism and, and the, what the anonymity of the web brings. But I think most people can figure that out. I don't know. I'm off on a tangent. Other than that, I, I think it's good. But I remember writing about it in Beer Evangelist Guide that I also think people need what I hope is that we can mature as a culture to realize that when we, when we hit the return button, you know, we're writers. And I wish that we would be more mindful in what we did with our words online as humans. And that goes to the stop and taste or yeah, just Yeah, whether you're stop. professional or not. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think there's Yelp reviews that are finished before they're done with their meal. Yeah. And it's like, we need... Uh, the stop and taste was about... Have the enjoy the experience. Set things down. Turn things off. Like, I, is that still online? Do you know? It is not online. That's too bad because it, it's. We may go back up. I have all the episodes. I'm not sure the, where that'll go. Okay, because that, that's one of those things that I think people should go and, and back and just. Yeah, uh, I mean the stop and taste yeah. campaign is alive and well, but my yeah. uh, 
my particular podcast episodes uh, okay. are not currently on the server. Well, if that goes back up, but also go to the New Holland site and look at the Stop and Taste campaign, yeah. which I thought came out, what, what in 2014? Uh, that sounds about right. 14, 15. Um, it, was, it was really one of the better... Uh, if not the best craft brewery uh, marketing campaign of that year. Uh, and it really got people uh, thinking. I remember uh, seeing it at GABF, uh, Great American Beer Festival, and people were actually stopping and uh, reading the words and, and really taking it all in. And I think that it, it helped people uh, connect with uh, with beer better, yeah. uh, but certainly your brand, which is what you wanted it to yeah. do, but, but, but beer as a whole. And um, yeah. overall, that's prioritizing experience. And you, we got to this point by you saying um, you don't always have to be critical. And I just think, you know, with with people on apps and wanting to log all their beer adventures and uh, every beer they had, I'm like, so there's some of that that can be really good, like journaling is really good. Yeah. But, like, we know what it's like to judge beer professionally. And when you're in a judge a judge's table, you're there to find flaws and to, and to also find the exceptional beers at the table. And so... It is our job, like it's a mechanic's job, to diagnose a car that's not running properly, to be critical to find beer. That, to me, is not the most pleasant part about drinking beer. No. That's hard work. No, yeah. Right? And it, like, it will take away your, your pleasure for a minute. Right. And but you get that from people where they're like, oh, being, judging beer. <laughs> yes, yeah. I can. And I, I'm proud that, you know, that there are professionals that can do that really well, and I'm proud to be in that company. But like, I want people to be able to set that aside and be like, all the all the sort of, you know, regular drinkers that are rating beer. I kind of look at like that's like the least enjoyable part of beer. Like, <laughs> yeah, talk to your date. I, talk yeah, to your talk to your buddy. Yeah, meet a friend. Like, yeah, you know, one the phrase um, that I've come to is that. By the way, pretty much everybody listening has now just turned off in disgust because you yeah. know that's. <laughs> oh, this rant again. So he, I'll sum it up, um, and then Wait, we yeah, can move to the next point. I'll sum it up: is that I like to talk shit over beers. I don't like to talk a shit about beers over beers. Okay. That's a good philosophy. You know, like, it's... talk shit instead of talking shit about the beer. That's what beer is there for, so you can talk shit about something else. I th- that's probably a pull quote for this episode. Um, you mentioned the Beer Evangelist Guide, uh, your book that came out uh, a couple years ago. And we're here at the Michigan uh, Brewers Guild Winter Conference uh, in Kalamazoo. And tomorrow, you're working on a dinner for 500 people. Uh, which yes. I, I can't imagine that there's too many people who have listened, who are listening to this right now, uh, have ever had a similar experience. So, I want to briefly just ask, uh, in 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 a very brief way, uh, what's that like? Well, thankfully, um, I helped create this dinner with the Radisson Hotel back in I think what would have been January of 2010. And so they've been through this a few times, and they do the heavy lifting in terms okay. of the cooking and logistics, and like, and they they are pros. And um, so, kudos to John, Jake, Jesse, and Lindsay who who make all that happen and their crews. But what we did was we I was really frustrated having been the president of the guild for a long time. That wasn't what I was frustrated with. But we, um, to be blunt, we were we were failing at our dinner at our conference because okay. it was the last thing to be planned. We were all volunteer board. Our conference had grown to be a few, couple, few hundred people. But um, I was just a regular beer dinner for that for that type of group and that number of group. And with the amount of planning we were putting forward to it, wasn't working. And so when I stepped down as president, I was like, we we need something different. And I, long story short, instead of trying to do a course dinner, 
which with that number of people and the it's attention span impossible. of brewers and the yeah. number of beers we have available to us is like that's we're trying to limit this to like six beers we're trying to get brewers to sit still for an hour and a half these are losing propositions so what we've done is we've organized the room there's uh, we just changed it a little bit this year but there's essentially um, four flavor based stations and then two other stations and the flavor based stations it's is built around how I built Beer Evangelist Guide, which I started teaching beer through families of flavor instead of styles first. So there's a malt forward table, and there's three courses there, two beers paired with each dish. But you know, if you want one beer, it'll go with pretty much any one of those dishes. I've tailored it specifically, but loosely at the same time, because these are all the flavor families that are gonna go along well with any of those beers. So if you wanna nerd out and try every pairing, uh, it's set up for you to be able to do that and, and it's browsing so that you can walk around you can go to whatever station you want to at any time so people don't have to sit still they can socialize and hang out and, and if you want to just get a beer and, and put some food on your plate and continue your conversation you can do that too so you don't have to be uh, a fan of the process to have a good time and have good food and drink in your hands and then our and so we have a hop forward station we have from the cellar, which is fermentation forward beers like Belgians and and Hefe's, etc. And then the fourth is I call it wood aged and fruit, but it's like the freestyle where you start bringing in ingredients like wood or fruit or spices or things beyond traditional beer ingredients. That's the freestyle table. And then this year we moved dessert off the flavor tables, so we have a fifth table that's dessert. And then there's a dessert paired with each flavor family. Okay. And then. The six is just grazing, an unpaired station with salads and cheeses. So it really allowed us to put um, some logistics in the hotel's hands where they can do a lot of smaller kind of walking style dishes. They can have hot boxes and chefs behind tables instead of trying to plate this um, for what at the time was like 250 people and it's now grown to 500. So, and I sit down with the hotel staff and we create a menu based on these flavor families and then I go through and this year, the last two years, I think, uh, I know this year specifically, there isn't one brewery repeated on the pairing. So we have uh, 32 paired beers and then a, a casual draft bar that's unpaired. That's a testament to how much Michigan beer has grown. Yeah, and, I, and I, I wasn't even hard pressed. It was like, I have 38 breweries represented. Uh, 32 of them are paired with 16 dishes. So you've used the word pairing uh, a, a few times, and as, 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 as I start looking at the clock uh, for this episode, I think that there is a lot of misinformation when it comes to pairing beer with food, um, and I think that there's also just a lot of uncertainty that uh, people have uh, because they feel like there's this enormous pressure to get it right. You know, it has to be a, a thousand percent. It has to be this this epic high five every time whatever you have on your plate uh, matches whatever's in your glass. Um, and, and you don't subscribe to that philosophy. And so I wonder when, when somebody says to you, you know, oh, well, how, do you, how do you pair beer and food? Which is such a wide open question. But, yeah. you know, is there, is there one or two things that all of us can carry around and, and, and remember without stressing ourselves out? Yeah, I'll do my best um, to both help and also to keep it brief, which I'm not very good at. But, um, you know, the first thing I want to do is encourage people to have confidence and that, you know, mindfulness is your biggest tool, like thinking about it, taking a pausing for a minute and thinking we're, we're going for harmony. We're going for things that 
go well together one way or another. There's all sorts of different ways to do that, and that's where the tips and the guides and, and learning more specifics will help you. But essentially, the purpose is that we're looking for things that bring us pleasure when they come together and that change the experience. You know, I talk about pairing being the expectation of change, that we're not just eating something good next to drinking something good. We're hoping that their they're coming together changes the experience for us. And one way I try to encourage people to think for themselves about this um, is that, you know, if you have an opinion on peanut butter and jelly, like, do you love it? Do you hate it? Do you, are you indifferent? We'll you, cut the crust first, obviously, but yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so those are two different flavors that were brought together for harmony that you have an opinion of. You've been pairing since you were a little kid. Yeah. Because you either said, yes, I want another one, or, oh, that's terrible. That instinct we have in us, our, palate, our tongue talks to our brain all the time, we have all the tools. So now you're just in the, the last, not the last, but the, the last one for today that I'll add is, so there's this mindfulness and harmony, then there's like permission to trust yourself that you're a tasting expert, you've been doing it all your life. And then um, there's this idea that if you look flavor first, instead of technique or style, you don't have to be an expert to say, oh, this tastes like grapefruit, this tastes like chocolate, this tastes like caramel, this tastes like fruit. What do I like with those things? I've had chocolate before. What do I like with chocolate? Would I like it next to vanilla ice cream? Oh, so so a beer that you don't necessarily, you don't have to know if it's a porter or a stout or a brown ale, but if it has chocolatey notes and you wonder whether it'll pair well with your apple pie a la mode, like yeah. you have the tools to try it and to say, hey, you know, I think this would go well here. Like, So I just, I think people have more power and more um, awareness than they know and the quickest way for any of us including me or you or other experts to like diminish our our creative juices is to like clamp down on everything and be like I hope I get this right I better not screw it up right uh, that's when we'll start ideas like get locked away in boxes and so there are ways you can get better at your vocabulary or get better at thinking about the number of choices you have and, and get a little more reliable suggestions in terms of things to try just like looking through recipes to cook mm -hmm. but you know the best cooks start to start to go on their instincts and you can inform your instincts but I'm saying everybody everybody that has a tongue you know working awake brain uh, has the ability to pair mindfully alright I like it thanks that's uh I think that's a good place to leave. Yeah, and flavor first. You know, what is it? Ask yourself what it tastes like, rather than um, trying to be correct about what you think it's supposed to taste like. That's good advice. Fred Biltman is the author of the forthcoming book, This Craft Nation, which you can find online at thiscraftnation.com. They're also on Twitter at the same thing, uh, at thiscraftnation. And his podcast you can find uh, under the tinyurl.com slash thiscraftnation as well. You got all of the, the various domains with that. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm impressed uh, yeah, with that. Um, Fred, thanks for being here. Thanks for coming to Michigan and joining us for this uh, wonderful conference. We're really proud of the scene, the community we have here. We got three days of uh, camaraderie uh, coming up, and uh, we'll have a great time. So thanks for supporting the cause. Of course. It's a great beer state, and you can read more about it uh, always in the pages, or now and again, I guess I should say, in the pages of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine uh, online at beerandbrewing.com. 
If you have questions for me, comments, what we can do better, uh, guests you'd like to hear, or other thoughts, letters you'd like read on the air, you can reach me, John Hall, at John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at beerandbrewing.com, or on Twitter, at John underscore Hall, again, H-O-L-L. And we will be back next week with a brand new episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you all soon. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. 